I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. The idea that we can't put a price on these things, that we can't put a price or a value on nature in any which way, that it's priceless, that it transcends economics and markets, which are so tawdry and so on. And I agree with some of that philosophically. I I wish we lived in a world that valued nature to that extent, but we actually do put a price on nature all the time. And too often the price is zero. At the end of 2022, 200 countries signed the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, what some have called the Paris Agreement for Nature. It calls on signatories to work together to enhance the resilience of natural ecosystems and to turn the tide on species extinction rates through the setting of national targets, the establishment of disclosure regimes, and the creation of innovative financing mechanisms, such as biodiversity credits. And while there has been some subsequent positive international progress on this front, driven by the UK and others, most biodiversity credit markets remain in very nascent stages. So in this episode, Hossie's investment team lead for nature-based solutions, Tim Morad, speaks with Tim Mayle and Ryan Sarsfield of the Environmental Policy Innovation Center, or EPIC. They discuss the imperative of protecting and valuing biodiversity, the existing and potential buyers for biodiversity credits, lessons learned from other environmental markets, and much more. I'll also note that the Hassey Foundation recently provided a grant to EPIC for its work at the intersection of climate action and social justice. Tim and Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you both. Um, I'm excited to be leading uh, and interviewing this on the first time on the podcast. I'm particularly excited to discuss such a promising topic. So my goal here is to give you both a chance to explain biodiversity credits with a holistic and fair focus. First off, Tim, how did you find your way into this climate space? I had four much older brothers and one of them had discovered this project where a team of scientists were trying to put nature back on a former military installation, an island uh, off of uh, in New York that had been completely paved by the army during World War II. And so I get to spend 10 years, starting from the age of seven, watching birds and wildlife and habitat come back on this place that was literally, you know, a concrete desert. And it just... Uh, convinced me that there's so much more we can fix uh, in our world uh, if we try. That's great. And Ryan, same to you. How'd you find your way into the climate space? I started a lot, uh, like a lot of folks, curious about the natural world. I was always the kid at the edge of the pond looking for frogs and whatever else I'd see there. My dad uh, is a retired biology teacher. So that led me to ecology and evolution in college, some field research experiences, And then eventually I realized I was probably not going to go into academic science directly. Uh, I'd be a better fit for conservation and management. And it's been um, kind of, in in retrospect, a logical evolution ever since. So a range of land and habitat issues that tie together biodiversity and climate. So I worked on tropical deforestation for quite a long time, forest monitoring, uh, forest carbon, and now biodiversity crediting. So it's it's all making sense, all in the right direction. So, Tim, you founded EPIC, uh, which stands for the Environmental Policy Innovation Center, in 2017. What is EPIC, and why was and is it still necessary, and what is EPIC focusing on today? I'm a really impatient person, and uh, I have spent a lot of time working at other nonprofits, working at government, state, local, and federal. Before founding EPIC, I spent a little time um, working in the Obama administration, 
and just realized I wanted some place where that impatience uh, was really center to the mission. Um, there's a big difference between like the place where you work, Tim, which is there's a constant appetite for sales and deals. And, you know, you need to get to the end point, right, to get paid. And the nonprofit world or the government world where that's not true. And with Epic, by putting speed into our mission, we're trying to build that uh, kind of impatience into the work. Right. We need we need action on climate. We need action on conservation, on uh, on water quality faster than we've been doing it for the last 10 to 50 years. And so for us and for me, we needed a new, you know, new organization that does advocacy analysis uh, and and advisory services that could kind of fill that gap. And um, it's been reassuring to see it grow. We have about 30 staff now. And, uh, you know, uh, kind of an impact across the spaces that we've tried to work. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, we've witnessed the growth and it's, it's impressive and promising. And so congrats to you on how much your group has grown. Um, Ryan, so speaking of growth, you recently joined Epic as senior advisor for biodiversity markets. So it's the new position at Epic. So tell us why you joined the organization and what you're focusing on. Sure. Yeah. Like a lot of folks I, I talk to now, they've heard of biodiversity crediting. It's in the air almost everywhere. Uh, and folks are learning about it. And, um, at a certain stage, I was getting curious about it from afar. Um, although it seemed quite a logical fit for me, given my, my past experience, right? It seemed like a, a challenging way to go about things, but for the first time, kind of a direct way to value biodiversity, what I had been aiming to work on all along, not via a proxy, say, of deforestation, although that's pretty good, or other kinds of habitat things, or forest carbon likewise, that uh, goes a lot of the way there, but it's not directly valuing the biodiversity that we wanted. So looking at it that way, I thinking, working on agricultural supply chains, forest carbon, all these different pieces, how can we actually shift investment into biodiversity directly and have it take its place among other resources that we get from land? So how is it going to compete against ag, timber, carbon? And Epic turned out to be the right place to do that. So what we're doing, what I'm focusing on, is trying to get that market into reality. So working with partners, developers, investors, landowners, working on all these different methodologies that are coming about, trying to get a good consensus on best practices and get actual projects on the ground as proofs of concept to uh, make the market a reality. That's what we're aiming to do. That's, that's excellent. And um, I think we've now said the word biodiversity enough where we're at the point of the interview where we should define it and uh, begin to talk about it. So, Ryan, what is biodiversity and why should we care about it? Sure. Yeah, it's there's a lot of academic definitions. Um, it, the term has been around for about 40 years now. Uh, to me, fundamentally, it's life. It's life and its full range of variation across plants, animals, fungi, everything else. The differences between species, their ecological relationships, all of it. It's uh, sometimes I, I get grandiose about it. I say it's life on Earth, but that's what we're talking about. And we as humans are part of it. Our well-being is completely dependent on it, and our economy is totally dependent on it. And we've been late in recognizing those those kind of simple truths. It, it sounds like a mantra uh, that comes from um, certain parts of the environmental world, but it's entirely true from an economic perspective. 
And uh, I think biodiversity is starting to pop up as a genuine risk and opportunity in the business world. Yeah, we, we certainly hear the same. And um, it brings us to the topic of making a market out of this, uh, so to speak. And that would be through the form of biodiversity credits. And so would you like to talk to us a little bit about the concept of biodiversity credits and what sort of problem they solve? I'm happy to jump in there, Tim. Um, it, you know, credit is fundamentally just a unit of currency, right? Like a dollar. So the question, one question is, can you create a unit of the environment? Um, the answer is yes. It's complicated, but the answer is yes. Um, the other is that it has to be a unit that has value, right? That somebody wants. Uh, and so just adding to what Ryan said before, you know, why are the, what are the reasons that businesses, that government, uh, is interested in units of biodiversity right now. One is just because of social and cultural change. People value nature, you know, National Geographic, David Attenborough. Um, people don't want to lose, you know, a tenth of all the species on Earth in the next couple of decades. Uh, and so it has a set of social resonance, but it also increasingly has business relevance. People realize that that diversity of life that Ryan talked about is pretty critical for um, for companies' products, for companies' uh, workforce, for their their uh, their future, uh, and the the innovative space that they're able to operate in the future. So you've got a, a unit that's increasingly valued um, for lots of reasons, uh, and a science and a practice that's rapidly figuring out how to partition it right into nice tradable chunks. Biodiversity credits are you know are relevant and interesting now, uh, in part because We've had so much action on, on climate and carbon crediting, right? So companies increasingly all around the world and governments and countries too are trying to figure out what kind of impact do they have on global greenhouse gas, you know, um, emissions and what can they do to avoid that and then to offset it, right? Offset it with, with things that store, sequester, uh, otherwise create a benefit for the, for the planet for the planet's atmosphere, that same need is what's evolving in the biodiversity space. So, you know, whether it's um, European uh, financial regulators or maybe the U.S. SEC uh, or other actions around the world and just voluntary commitments, people are looking for uh, a way to invest in units of biodiversity gain or improvement or preservation um, to, to offset or compensate for some harm that they or their supply chain causes. Yeah. And I think th th there's, uh, as you mentioned, Tim, there's plenty of uh, parallels and lessons to be learned from other um, offset or compensatory credit markets. And I think we can get into those maybe in more detail um, later in the conversation here. Um, before we get there, maybe Ryan, you can answer the question of, uh, and Tim touched on it a bit, but you know, who are the primary buyers of biodiversity credits and why? It is the big question. It's the question I get probably more than anything else uh, from folks who work in the environmental world or outside of it. They say, who's going to buy these things? Um, it, it seems uh, sometimes far-fetched because it's so novel um, and people think of all the different ways nature's already valued and they think, oh, we've probably got it covered, right? Um, we beg to differ on that front. Um, it's a mix of carrots and sticks. Uh, as Tim said, there's a path laid down um, related to emissions and, and work on climate where it became a primary business concern for a lot of industries. 
and they've acted on it slowly but surely. Disclosure became a thing slowly but surely. And there grew all of these different rationales for actually acting on climate um, and, and treating it with that due seriousness it deserves. Same thing's happening with biodiversity. So there's um, stakeholder pressure from across the board. Investor pressure in particular is going to be really an interesting lever. Uh, we're seeing it. It's not universal, but uh, in the EU, for example, CSRD, similar initiatives, um, and anyone working multinationally, things like TNFD and other uh, efforts where disclosing biodiversity impacts is becoming the norm. And it's going to hit some folks out of left field. Uh, it seems a bit uh, further along than a lot. Of think, I think a lot of uh, climate-related folks are, are thinking at this stage, but it's definitely coming, whether we like it or not, right? Um, it's oftentimes actual regulation. So in England, for example, they have a biodiversity net gain policy that's currently being implemented, and that will require a genuine uh, increase in biodiversity as the net product of what they're doing in their business work. Um, there's all these different business risks, dependencies. If you're dependent on pollination, and uh, a whole lot of the world's agricultural economy is, you're going to take uh, extra care to ensure that pollinators, especially wild pollinators, are surviving and flourishing because your business depends on it. Just as uh, companies who've thought, oh, water risk is a big thing for us because our factories run on clean water, they will then invest in clean water, not as a um, an effort, a philanthropic effort to do good, but because their their um, balance sheet actually depends on it. Right. Let me just add to that. Right. So, so some of the sources, U.S. There's a there's a kind of a multi billion dollar per year uh, market for biodiversity for habitat credits for wetlands and streams uh, because of regulations. Uh, Ryan just mentioned the the new regulation in England. So any impact to any habitat by, let's say, a new housing development or a new railroad line is going to have to be uh, be offset with biodiversity credits. Australia, at a state-by-state -state level, um, has rules. Col the country of Colombia uh, has rules. Germany has rules. So those are all kind of the regulated sources of, of, of biodiversity credits. And then in this financial disclosure space, you're going to have you know a bunch of new demand. And there's not demand yet. It's a trivial amount, basically. But the, the kind of bet is, the bets we certainly make and feel confident in is that in, within five years, there'll be you know hundreds of millions of dollars of, of, of transactions occurring from this financial regulation-driven need for biodiversity credits. And then there'll always be some purely voluntary stuff, some stuff that people are just doing because their employees like a nice ribbon cutting on a project and they, they, they think it's important as part of their kind of their brand and their, their value proposition. Um, and on the, in the financial disclosure space, like the, I, I'm old enough to watch the Brady Bunch as a kid. And there's this episode where, where Peter Brady throws a ball and breaks, you know, a vase, right? It's not good enough to just disclose, Hey, I broke the vase. You also have to do something to compensate for it, to fix it. Right. So <clears throat> although the finance rules are only requiring people to describe how much did you break, it immediately generates, you know, pressure, for people to say, well, how much are you avoiding? And okay, you haven't avoided some of that damage. What are you doing about it? And that's that's where yeah. it seems like the you know the biggest new market will. Right, right. And then the complicated questions of, did you rebuild the same vase? Is does does the new vase better than the old vase? Is it actually replacing the old vase? And we can we can um, get into all those questions later too. I think when we talk about. Um, 
you know, criticisms and considerations around biodiversity credits, because I think it will make this, uh, uh, people will be better served by the conversation, um, when we, uh, talk about those elements too. But before we get into that, so we talked about what are bio, what's biodiversity, what are biodiversity credits and who buys them and why that leads you to the question of, okay, well, that means you need to build a, what I'll call a biodiversity project that generates these questions. Um, and you'll forgive me for, you know, coming out of Hazzy, referring to everything as projects uh, that get built. Um, but so one method could be for the government to just fund these um, biodiversity projects directly. A second would be for some a nonprofit to fund the project directly. Um, but perhaps a third, which which I'd really love to focus the conversation or at least this question on, is a market-based mechanism called pay for success, really kind of a form of public-private partnership. So, um, Tim, you've done a lot of work in advocating for pay for success as a model to build these and other kinds of nature-based projects. What is pay for success? How does it work? Why is it good? Maybe what are some weaknesses? Please feel free to walk us through it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll just relate it to what we all do kind of every day, every day in terms of how we get stuff. Right. And there's the three examples I'll give are our Girl Scout cookies, a house painting project and a restaurant. Right. So Girl Scout cookies, somebody shows up at your door. They tell you what they're selling. You give them money. And weeks later, they come back with the product. Right. <laughs> and you have a pretty good high level of confidence what you're going to get, what you what you bought, including because. You bought it the last 10 years running. A, a house painter, you sign a contract with somebody, you give them 10% down. The day they show up before they paint the house, you give them the rest of the money. Uh, you're at risk, right? If the project doesn't work out that day and over the next week, you know, you've already paid them the money. Um, the last is restaurants. You walk into a restaurant, you order your food, you get your food, you eat your food, you're ready to go. And only at that moment do you hand over cash, right? And, the, and I give those examples because... Government has been doing the first two for a long time when it comes to environment and conservation work, and the private sector has been participating in that work. What's really been missing is the third category, the restaurant-like approach, where uh, the business, the business owner, the entity providing, in this case, you know, the biodiversity results, uh, takes the risk to produce the product um, to meet some specification, delivers it to you, and only then gets compensation. And it's not a replacement for those other two approaches, just like we need them in the rest of our economy and lives. But it's a it's a really powerful complementary approach that so you can have specialists who know where to produce value in nature, go out and produce that value in nature with backing from investment and, and other sources of capital um, and deliver it to the market in a way that is has a really clear kind of value proposition. And I think what we've seen in the in the carbon space, we can get more into this, is a lot of buyers who have bought in advance, and then it turns out the product isn't what they thought it was, and they see themselves in the front page of a newspaper, right? So what Pay for Success is offering to private sector buyers, government buyers, taxpayers at large, is the ability to keep yourself out of those headlines, right? To only buy products when the product is delivered. And we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of awesome results in that space for things like wetland restoration for um, water quality improvements across the environmental space. Again, those are large areas of existing investment and has a huge potential to, to play a role in biodiversity crediting. Building off of that metaphor, I mean, just, just like a restaurant, what that means then is the restaurant is not being paid for the food until they've served it to the customer and the customer's consumed it. 
means that the restaurant needs to find a way to finance and fund um, its own operations to produce the food um, prior to serving it. And um, I think that's what a lot of these developers um, are faced with now too, which is the financing need uh, and pay for success. And um, this is because you're shifting the performance risk from the government back on to the private sector to say, you know, bring me a final product. The what it costs you to bring it to me is now your problem. Um, and so you you bring the financing need back into the private sector. And I think, um, you know, it opens up an opportunity for um, public private partnership on the uh, investing and financing side as well, as well as the um, project construction side. And, you know, we know that this is a model that works in basically every other infrastructure and project development market. Um, and so I think it'd be fair to think it would work here as well. And we, we have examples of it. So you broke a vase. Now you've done something to repair the vase or perhaps build another vase elsewhere. Ryan, what are some criticisms of biodiversity credits from the environmental community? And you know, which would you say are warranted and, and which are not uh, when you think about these criticisms and considerations? Yeah, it gets it gets pushed back in lots of interesting ways. Uh, one that pops up in lots of different contexts is more philosophical, I think, than anything else. The idea that we can't put a price on these things, that we can't put a price or a value on nature in any which way, um, that it's priceless, that it transcends economics and markets, which are so tawdry and so on. And I agree with some of that philosophically. I, I wish we lived in a world that valued nature to that extent, but we actually do put a price on nature all the time and too often the price is zero. So in land, uh, looking at in, in land markets, you got timber, mining and oil, real estate, every other human endeavor operating out there in the world, doing what they do, extract resources, buying and trading land, uh, the natural environment, if not otherwise formally protected, uh, it tends to fall to the wayside. So valuing it directly is the way to stack its proper value, which is huge, up against all the other natural resource values. And you know, I worked for a long time on deforestation in South America in, in supply chains for soybeans and beef. And the value put on biodiversity directly is quite low. And the value put on land for soybeans and the land for pasture for cattle and land speculation is quite high relatively. And we see the effects of that. We get more and more deforestation. So similar arguments to forest carbon, where if you value the carbon, value anything on the landscape that we want correctly and have a good market for it, we'll, we'll get better outcomes. So that's, that's what we're up against in some ways. But I think... Um, it's better to have a value that's positive than a value that's not even on the charts at all. Climate Positive is produced by Hassi, a leading climate investment firm that actively partners with clients to deploy real assets that facilitate the energy transition. To learn more, please visit Hassi.com. Some people argue that if we let people you know, buy nature as a replacement for the damage that they're causing, that government is going to, or society writ large, is going to allow more projects that damage nature to happen, right? So the, the concept is like, if we just said no, no, you can't get a permit for that, that that would be a better result. And, and the problem with the reason that's not a valid, ar valid argument is because there's no evidence from anywhere in the world at any time that when government is faced with 
issuing permits for, you know, the economic prosperity of its people and not issuing permits in a binary way, the government chooses the latter, you know, most of the time, right? Rather, other than a small number of exceptions. So that's the, that's often the argument. If we just say no, government won't issue the permit for the mine or the houses or the new school and, you know, the project won't happen. And, and it's, and, and that's not the choice. That's the false choice. The real choice is, does government issue the permit without doing anything about the biodiversity damage? We've been doing that for, you know, 100 years. Or do we say you actually have to avoid impacts? And then if you have impacts, you have to, you know, offset them. And where we then also get caught up, right, is that things like, you know, fixing a desert or fixing a, a really, you know, slow growing, you know, old growth ecosystem, that stuff is still super hard, right? So we can't say, scientists can't say that we have a recipe you know, for, for putting those places back or fixing ones that have been damaged. Um, we have lots of other ecosystems where we have a really good track record of, of you know, of, of bringing a lot, maybe not, you know, pristine state, but bringing a lot of nature back. And that's the space where, you know, we, we need to really push this argument that like offsets are the best, the best possible outcome in a, in a situation where government's looking at, you know, growing population, growing prosperity, trying to help people adjust their, um, their daily lives with a whole set of other values. Certainly, which which would bring me to my next question, which is other offset markets. So we've, we've learned a lot from other credit markets, both compulsory markets like the wetlands mitigation market in the U.S., the Section 404 market, and voluntary, like the voluntary carbon market that's emerging and really emerged in the U.S., and not even really so nascent anymore. So how can we sort of port lessons that we've learned in these offset credit markets, you can draw the distinction between, you know, the ones that are required by regulation and the others that are voluntary. Now that we sort of have more of a uh, greenfield, bad pun, to work with on biodiversity credits, you know, what sort of lessons would you would you apply? I'll let Ryan jump in as well. Um, you know, one from the carbon space is that a lot of the, the headlines are around what are called avoided loss projects where you go out, you take a, a pristine for a near pristine forest or other ecosystem, and you say, we're going to um, lock this thing up because what would have happened is it would have been developed. And it turns out it's really complicated and full of, um, full of errors, assumptions that prove to be wrong in terms of how much of that land would have been, you know, would have been lost. So that's going to happen in the biodiversity space too. We have a choice between restoration projects where you're putting something back and preservation where you keep it from going away. And, and I just think leaning into the restoration side of things as opposed to the preservation side is really key. And, and that same lesson exists in the U.S. with the wetland uh, uh, crediting market where the vast majority of credits are focused on restoration and uplift in habitats. So that's one thing I'd say that's really key. The other one, and again, it's just kind of a rife subject throughout these markets that exist, is liability transfer. Right. At the end of the day, the buyer is paying somebody who's supposed to know something about nature and climate uh, to deliver a service. They should be able to pay them enough that the buyer is kind of walking away from the liability to have to know anything about that project two and five and 10 years down the line. And the provider picks up that liability um, for a price, right, for, for a price. That's worked really, really well in the U.S. wetland market, where at the end of the day, the buyers are, are often unknown at the end of the day. Like uh, an individual project may um, may get taken to task by regulators for failing to produce wetlands or being full of invasive species, and they have to fix it. They have to have financing in place to fix it. 
but the company that bought them is not on the front page. And the reverse is true in the carbon credit space. So to build biodiversity credits, we really need that liability transfer. A company needs to know that if you know they're doing something to help Jaguars, it's the specialist that said, we know how to help Jaguars, who's really got the liability for doing so. Ryan, you want to add something? Just echo additionality, 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 right? We use this term in, in a lot of these markets. Folks in the forest carbon space are quite familiar with it. We want to know that what we're buying or what is being purchased is actually happening, that there's clarity on that. Just as Tim said, between preservation and restoration, we deal with that. It comes up as well with stacking questions that if we had uh, a consensus on the science and how you can separate the intervention for forest carbon versus biodiversity, despite how linked they are, then we could do that. But at least as we get the market going, we want to stress less risky things. We want to stress where additionality is extra clear. So uh, we'll, we'll wave that additionality flag from here on uh, forever. Um, more generally, I, I would say from the U.S. environmental markets, it's b because so much of the biodiversity credit market is building um, amidst the, the kind of discourse and the discussions, everything going on with forest carbon, it misses a bit of all this experience that you laid out of, uh, of these markets that we have decades of experience with lots of uh, very, very well experienced players in those markets that know what they're doing. They're professionals, right? So they prove that valuing and transacting nature uplift is entirely viable as a market. Granted, it's regulatory. It makes things uh, a bit simpler in that respect. Uh, but this is not doing a moonshot, right? This is, it can be done. It can be done well. Um, we have the, the, the restoration and ecological science to do a lot of this. It's not a perfect science, but it's pretty darn good. Um, and likewise, as Tim said, contract, uh, contracts, liability, financing structures, all those other things that make a project viable um, and legitimate. We know how to do that. This is not a, a, a new, a brand new world that we have to create from scratch. Even if when we talk about biodiversity credit markets, we're, we're not usually referring to these existing markets uh, that we're actually quite familiar with and work. So there's now a few international organizations focused on building corporate and NGO collaboration around biodiversity. One is the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, which has developed a set of disclosure recommendations and guidance for organizations to report and act um, on evolving nature-related dependencies and impacts and risks. Tell us about the potential role of this disclosure framework and organization in driving action to protect biodiversity specifically and support emerging biodiversity credit markets. A lot of this is coming from Europe. There's standard setting happening right now. It's uh, TNFD is part of this global trend. Um, and as we said, the, that path was kind of laid down by a lot of the politics and the disclosure and the investor pressure that came um, out, came out about um, emissions and, and climate concerns, right? So financial disclosure is coming. It's part of the, the landscape that we're working with. Um, it's we're in earlier stages where I don't think there's as much of a connection between, as Tim said, the recognition that the, the vase is broken and what you should actually do about it. There's a lot of companies out there who are happy to, to get out with a new policy on being nature positive, but it's often not as well defined, I think, as they would like or we would like. It's hard to connect the, the impact one-to-one -one with the action taken. In some cases, that's traditional 
as I'll say, traditional kind of partnerships with uh, environmental NGOs to do preservation in a particular area, to plant trees in, uh, in some fashion, uh, but it's not usually quantified ecologically or geographically. We have these impacts and we want to tie that to a particular mitigating um, action. And yeah, the word offset is, is uh, fraught in this space because it's common to have uh, a, a discussion where in the same breath almost people will say, yes, we want to compensate for what we're doing. We want to be nature positive, but we can't call them offsets because that's a four letter word. Yeah, and I'll just say, like, uh, there's a bunch of mismatch that exists, right? It's true in lots of spaces uh, uh, that exist, uh, but a mismatch, right? So scientists want to talk about how do we measure something? How do we measure nature to, like, a, a really fine degree of precision? Um, a lot of the kind of government participants want to talk about how do we get a lot of money for nature? And then the businesses, the buyers, at the end of the day, uh, which could include and should include government, are talking about what do we get in exchange for our money, right? So there's various bodies working on various pieces of that. The, the TNFD conversation to me and that, and that really valuable um, uh, effort by experts around the world is, you know, focused on a piece of that um, of in terms of, you know, how do we create some standards that, you know, get us this one thing. There's other efforts to create more, um, more standards for the financing, right? Like, give us a billion dollars, give us $5 billion. How do we create innovative finance structures or create an easier pathway for a large scale kind of public private, you know, investment and things. Um, so it's kind of a healthy um, uh, chaos right now of structures, all kind of ad hoc, right? None are formally driven by a uh, legislative, you know, mandate or fiat or something, but um, that are all working toward kind of increasing standards that make it easier for for buyers to buy, for sellers to provide, and for you know nature to, to prosper, and us to have data, you know, about it. Well, this gets into the sort of public conversation um, and cultural conversation around biodiversity. We have a lot of public education around climate change. It's at least now worked its way into. Um, not being climate change, not being a four letter word all the time, sometimes still a four letter word in certain circles, but um, now mostly sort of a mainstream accepted um, trend and term. What would you say, Ryan, is the state of public conversation and education around biodiversity, which I think is a bit more sort of esoteric to people? Yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. You know, I'm I'm uh, 44. I've been doing this stuff for some period of time, I'll say. And uh folks who are older than I am in the space, um, you know, got a lot of the conversation on biodiversity going 30, 40 years ago, long before climate was uh, in, in, in a literal sense or in a public conversation sense as big as it is, right? And it, it was funny how so many uh, people in the environmental conservation space ended up shifting into things called climate initiatives one way or the other, and not for a bad reason, right? These, this is all part of the necessary work to be done in this in the environmental world and more broadly, um, and all of the effects of climate change that we're concerned of as humans likewise affect biodiversity. So it wasn't a, a, a bad move, but it has been frustrating at times how little biodiversity has entered that conversation when we've acknowledged this global crisis on climate. And, and not as much the global crisis on biodiversity and acted like it's a global crisis, right? So I, I hesitate to say that too much attention is paid one to the other. They're both um, extraordinary global problems. I would hate to find ourselves in 50 years 
having largely sorted out the path towards uh, a zero emissions world where we're actually uh, solving climate change and look back and say, gosh, we, we lost an awful lot along the way and we actually need that. And it's it's something for our, our cultural lives, our existence as humans and all these different aspects of our economy, this stuff is fundamental and we can't leave that to the wayside as we go forward with climate. I mean, the other thing, Tim, is that, you know, biodiversity has its own TV channels, right? Like blockbuster films, National Geographic, Discovery, Disney movies. So, and whereas greenhouse gases, you can't see, right? <laughs> I mean, so at the end of the day, yes, it's still, it hasn't kind of pervaded our, um, our economic solution set yet, but find, you know, find me a kid who doesn't understand something about nature that, you know, the kids a generation ago didn't know, right? Really sophisticated exposure to nature all the time. And the rarer it gets, the kind of the more valuable um, it gets. So, I mean, that's, I think that's, we, we, we talked about this at the outset of the conversation, that the kind of level of interest in biodiversity has gone up incredibly fast. Um, and part of that is because people, you know, intuitively like um, the birds and bunnies and bees, you know, down the road from them. Uh, and they already see a, you know, connection to it within, you know, some, some kind of reasonable balance with, with the economy. It's much yep. easier yep. to explain uh, biodiversity credit markets as esoteric as they might seem uh, to my niece and nephew than, say, carbon markets. I'll, I'll put it that way. It, it, entirely. And I think it's a, a huge um, advantage, for lack of a better term, that the that that market has um, in terms of its growth potential. Um, you know, and I think that's actually been. On the flip side, the fact that climate is not so tangible and you can't really see or conceptualize carbon emissions, that's been uh, a headwind for or a difficult thing about communicating why climate change matters. So um, I completely agree and w uh, agree with you guys. And I'm hopeful that biodiversity credit markets have much more of a rapid acceleration in adoption and, you know, sort of public support than, than climate change did. Uh, okay, so Tim and Ryan, we are almost done, but first we'd like to put you on the hot seat. Um, so this is our section of the show where we ask you for your immediate reactions to the following statements and questions. So Tim or Ryan, one thing I've changed my mind on is the role of the private sector in solving biodiversity conservation problems. It's about money. You know, it's about money and things like contracting structures. I would have never thought that as a college student or beyond that I would need to know anything about um, procurement strategy. But it's uh, it's way more important than the class I took on um, insect. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, not maybe not as exciting, but one can um, at least one can help the other. Uh, Tim or Ryan, the key ingredient to my productivity is. I think for me, it's finding the right balance of collaboration, uh, interaction with other people, solo time, uh, the nature of the work we do. It's a lot of emailing and reading and writing for sure, uh, calls, meetings, so on. And when I hit the right mix, I can get a lot done. If it's uh, too much, just conversations all the way through the day and I don't have the time to actually think and read or vice versa, uh, it's, it's not always the most productive day, I'd say. The book that has influenced me the most is? 
I'll go with one. Uh, I can't say it's a singular most influential, uh, singularly most influential, but uh, I love it and I talk about it all the time. Nature's Metropolis by William Cronin. Uh, it's an environmental history of Chicago in principle, right? But it's it's really this kind of crazy interwoven portrait of how the ecological conditions in the Midwest, uh, the nature of what the land is and what, what thrives there, how agriculture uh, developed there, technological and economic change, and, and people's lives were all intertwined. So how did uh, commodity futures get created? How did the railroads influence the uh, um, having universal time across the country so that railroad schedules would be aligned, things like that. All these things grew out of that, as they always do in every place and time. But that was the kind of singular best portrait I can think of that, that threads these together in a, a really beautiful way. Tim, I'm going to add one in this too. There's a book called Nixon and the Environment, and I've only ever seen one copy of it, which I inherited from one of my brothers. It's basically like an anti-campaign, anti-Nixon campaign book when he was running for re-election written by a bunch of environmentalists at the time. And it has the inside story on like the dog food industry and how the dog food industry was trying to support whaling and keep keep the Nixon administration, to whom they were a big donor, uh, in place and to keep regulations on whaling, you know, from from happening. And it is this, just this fascinating book because at the end of the day, like Nixon is giving credit for a pile of the most important environmental legislation that has ever happened in America. And yet everyone agrees that he didn't actually care about this subject himself, right? It was driven, it was politics, it was re-election. It was trying to do what the American people wanted. So it is just full of like completely eye-opening uh, insights for me about like the kind of shock, the assumption of, you know, how progress happens, how change happens that... Um, I, I've reread that book three times and I continue to be like in, I mean, even things like why does one agency exist in one part of the government versus another because of the interpersonal dynamics of Nixon being pissed off at one of his, one of his appointees about something else. I mean, I just, it's just a great, it's a great story about kind of improbable things happening for crazy reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd love to borrow it, especially because you've only ever seen one copy and um, it would be fascinating to learn something else about Nixon. He's obviously a known for, I'd say predominantly known for other things um, aside from the environment. So <laughs> um, Tim Mail, I want my kids to know that the world they're inheriting is better than the world that I was born into. Not worse. I have a now close to two-year-old and um, all of those cliches uh, become very, very real um, when you have a, a kid. And you certainly don't need to have a kid to feel that way. But um, when you do, it's 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 really keenly put in focus. Um, President Obama said about something about um, that if you could choose a time to be born in history, you would choose to be born now, not at any time in the past. And I think people don't. People think that that's not the case when they're, you know, looking at the news headline. I can, uh, you know, take his point that um, sometimes we look, you know, at the past with, you know, rose-colored lenses, and you know, now, you know, you take things like antibiotics for for granted or whatever, whatever time period you want to choose, computers, um, smartphones. Yeah, I think it, that that is a broad brush comment uh, when people say that, you know, you'd always want to choose to be born now. Um, I don't know. I think that assumes that <laughs> assumes that everything we've done is just always incrementally better. And uh, I don't know if that's always the case. No, no, definitely not all, everything, but unbalance, right? Unbalance, 
the collective set of things that exist in the world today are better than where we were. <laughs> you know, yeah. Burning rivers, right? Burning rivers existed uh, when I was born, <laughs> and they don't exist anymore in America. Um, that's a that's a pretty big win. That's a big win. So next, Tim, you served as an elected city official for Tacoma Park, Maryland, when it became the first jurisdiction in the U.S. to lower its voting age to 16 for municipal elections and referendums. Tell us why upvoting is a good and important thing. Yeah, it turns out 16-year-olds vote at higher rates than 25 to 30-year-olds. So if you want the younger generation represented, the easiest thing to do is let those 16 and 70-year-olds vote because the 25 to 30-year-olds just keep not showing up. Um, and, and the second is that, you know, like everything we think about kind of immaturity and poor decision-making, um, well, some of it's true, but a lot of it's about snap spontaneous decisions. And it turns out when people look at the data, you know, 16 and 17 year olds, when making kind of thoughtful decisions over many months or years in the context of elections, turn out to be pretty good at picking, um, politicians that represent their interests, right? Like they, they have a pretty good connection between the decision-making and the rationale. And that sounds like a voter to me. So it was a, it was a great change. I mean, Scotland had let 16-year-olds vote for independence in their country. Austria had brought 16-year-olds. Uh, and Argentina and, and Nicaragua brought 16-year-olds into their voting population full stop. And uh, America should let 16- and 17-year-olds vote in every election we have. Okay. The final question. To me, climate positive means leaving things better than we found them. We'll put it that way. Not necessarily generationally, as we were talking just now, but having a net negative balance of emissions, if we're talking climate specifically. Uh, and in the same sense, nature positive should mean having on net a beneficial balance of, of nature, or at least, you know, I'll, I'll cut some, uh, some slack here and say, at least really be aggressively on the path to do that. Uh, it's a It's a tall order at this stage for... I think almost all companies to truly be net nature positive, uh, to be net climate positive, but the progress is being made for sure. And uh, I'd like to see the standards for biodiversity start to align with those of, of climate and emissions and we can get on that same path. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. This really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosiPod or email us at ClimatePositive at Hasse.com. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.